Welcome to 2024, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, Good to be here. We made it through another lap around the sun. Uh, I don't know what your new year feels like to you. I don't know what kind of goal setters you might be. Uh, I completed a goal in 2023, uh, a goal that I didn't even know I had until December, which is the best way to complete goals, in my opinion. Right, But in December, I went to the movies, and I saw a movie that I just loved. And I thought, where does this movie rank for me this year? Right, And so I started like cataloging, like, what were the new release movies that I saw in 2023? Movies that came out in 2023, that I saw in 2023? Where does this one rank? It was Godzilla minus one. It ranks number two on my list. I mean... It's a fantastic movie. um, But anyways, once I ranked him, I realized I had like 43 movies that I'd seen this year. And I'm like, you know, if I just get nine more, I can average a movie a week. And so that's what I did. I, I saw 52 movies that came out last year, last year. Some good ones, some terrible ones. Little Mermaid is at the bottom of my list. The live action one. Come at me, but... Talk about something completely unnecessary and a waste of your time. Just didn't need to happen at all. Um, But honestly, the biggest disappointment for me out of those were, were the superhero movies. Now, I'm a huge superhero movie fan. This year's crop was just, it let me down. Um, It let me down because superheroes have great stories to tell right? Uh, Superheroes, there's a ton of tension in the life of a superhero. I mean, look at Spider-Man, for example. Classic, hugely popular one. Uh, A kid with all of these great powers, but he just can't tell anyone who he is. And he just lives in this tension between like this part of my life and this part of my life. And it comes in conflict for him all the time. It's exhausting. He just wants to be himself wherever he goes and he can't. That's why superheroes are interesting. They have divided lives. And we get to see how those things play out. Um, They're great stories to tell with a conflict like that, but those are the movies, right? In real life, our stories don't play out the same way. In real life, our lives tend to fall apart when we live divided lives, when we separate ourselves based on who we're with or where we're going or what we want to do. I mean, have you ever felt like you had to show up differently based on where you were? Did you show up differently at the family party over the holidays than you do at work, than you do with your family, than you do with your friends? Are you a different person when you're alone than you are with your spouse? Are there things about you that only show up in some places but not others? For, for most of us, I believe that living this way, living a little bit disconnected with these disconnected parts of our lives just kind of floating around, I actually think it's pretty normal. I think that's a fairly standard approach to the world. You're at a kid's soccer game and four-year-olds are, 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 are crowding around a ball while three other ones are picking flowers on the other side, right? But you're not engaged because your thoughts, your attention are in your pocket that keeps buzzing at you, right? Or maybe your work environment is just 24-7, right? Uh, Gone are the days where it's like, I go to the office at eight, I come home at, at five. No, it doesn't work that way, right? And your spouse maybe has just come to accept that you need to be communicating all the time, even when you're on vacation, right? Or, or that part of you is always just going to be somewhere else, 
You know, often it's pretty normal to not be bringing our full self to wherever we are. We spend a lot of time on autopilot, not really fully engaging where we are with what we're feeling or thinking. Everywhere we look, our lives just end up to be fragmented. It's expected, it's normal, it's kind of the way everyday life works these days. But just because it's normal doesn't mean it's good. And uh, as I was preparing this message, I I spent a lot of time thinking backwards about 23. Uh, In in much of 23, we spent our time together as a church, uh, engaged in the scriptures in the book of Genesis. For about nine months, we read through that book uh, of the scriptures. And I see this same tendency in the stories we tell in Genesis. The same tendency to kind of tell a different story about who you are, depending where you are. Jacob and Isaac in Genesis 27, where Jacob lies to his father about who he is in order to steal the birthright. Or Abraham and Sarah, they go down to Egypt. Abraham lies about who Sarah is to him. She's not my wife, she's my sister, because he's afraid of the strangers he's meeting there. Or Joseph and his brothers at the end of Genesis, where Joseph hides his true self from them uh, when they come begging for grain. Even right away in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, God shows up in the garden looking for them and they're hiding because they are ashamed about a choice that they had made. Story after story after story in the Bible uh, of people refusing to just fully show up as themselves where they are. It's pretty normal for us. It seems like it was pretty normal in the Bible too. In fact, one story really stands out, not in Genesis, but uh, in, in the Gospels. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke in particular, in Luke chapter 22. And I just want to read you the story uh, after Jesus had been arrested. Then seizing him, Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, one of his disciples. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. This Peter guy was with Jesus. But Peter, he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Man, I am not. That's a funny response, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. You guys look the same. I know this. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. This is an identity crisis moment for Peter. The the most forward of all Jesus' disciples. The guy who constantly said things like, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. That's not who I am. And in the final hours of Jesus' life, he not only fails to stand by his teacher, he denies he ever even knew him. When the rubber meets the road, Peter cannot own up to who he really is. And because Peter's not lying about anything he did, right? Peter's lying about who he is. Are you Peter, the guy with Jesus? Nope. Nah, you were with him. You guys come from the same area. That's who you are. Definitely not. Never heard of this guy. Peter was anxious. He was scared. 
He was unsure. He didn't have control of the situation. And for some reason, when we are in situations like that, we act a lot like Peter. We think the best way to go is to kind of separate ourselves. Right? Whether it's in Genesis or it's Peter in the Gospels or it's ourselves, it seems difficult for us to show up as the same person in every situation with every person we're with. We think the easiest way to approach conflict, to approach pain, to deal with a mess, is to kind of divide ourselves up. Maybe to bury who we really are. I read this story about a woman named Amira, and she had this to say about the struggle she's experienced in her own life. She said, my worst nightmare was that other people would find out that I was as rotten as I felt myself to be. It's my biggest fear. And I had neither the tolerance nor the strength to face myself, and I often chose the easy way out. Sedatives, tranquilizers, I lived for them. They provided me uh, relief from the constant agony of an internal voice that said, what's wrong with me? And I just concluded, I don't want to feel that. And she said, sometimes I pushed the boundary too far. One time I swallowed enough pills to kill a buffalo. And when I woke up a few hours later, I simply asked for some more coffee. I lost interest in kind of doing that again. So I decided uh, to give up making myself unconscious and instead went to the other extreme, moving too fast. I started taking stimulants, uh, uh, various pills that would kick my body and mind into action so I could move, so I could talk and think at lightning speed. I figured if I kept moving, I wouldn't ever have to face myself again. That's her story. We all do this differently. But for some of you, you know what it feels like, this desire to do anything else but face yourself. And as a result, we divide ourselves. We, we divide ourselves depending on where we are, what the situation is, and who we're with. And when we do that, we often lose track of not only who we are, but who God wants us to become. When my kids were really little, I used to take them uh, to the library here in Jamestown on Saturday mornings, and they would do Lego build things. Uh, they, they would sometimes do this thing called a tech take-apart day, where my little kids would show up, and uh, they'd had all these computers and radios and monitors and all these electronics just laying on the table, and for the next hour, kids just got to take them apart, right? They could take them apart, look at what's inside, and when you were done, it's just this big mess of parts, right? Just laying everywhere. And to me, that feels a lot like what many of our lives look like. You got one area of your life over here, and this is how you manage that. You got another area of your life over here. That's how you manage that. You got a a, a pile over here for work. You've got a box hidden under the table that you hope nobody ever sees. Isn't that exhausting? Isn't living that kind of divided life just painful? And it is that way because that's not what God desires. It's not his intention for how he created you. So I want to jump into uh, some scripture in in the book of 1 Corinthians. And let me tell you a little bit about this book first. Um, the, the, The 1 Corinthians is a letter. It's a letter by a church planter named Paul to a group of people in his church in Corinth, a city. Now, Corinth is this, like, major port city. There's a lot of trade that goes in and out. 
So you have a lot of different kinds of people and cultures just mixing in Corinth. And you have all kinds of temples to Greek gods and Roman gods. It's a huge economic hotspot. The wealth uh, in Corinth rivaled that of the capital of Greece, Athens, uh, making it an extremely wealthy city. Paul lived there for about a year and a half. uh, And and he began this church of of Christ followers in this middle of the city. And then Paul left and he went to like start and, and launch other cities in different places or other churches in different cities. And as he left, he got word on how things were going here with his friends in Corinth. And he got word that they were a really divided community about a lot of things. In fact, in the book of 1 Corinthians, it's, it's kind of divided out into five different sections that address five different kinds of division. Uh, and each of them, Paul is responding to that kind of division to say, here's how you can live a more uh, undivided life. Here's how you can uh, look at your life through the lens of Christ and the gospel and find more integration. And he does that in the first four chapters where he talks about who they are choosing to follow. Some people say, I follow this guy. Some people I follow Paul. Paul's like, no, you follow Jesus, right? That's the first four chapters. Uh, in, in chapters five through seven, he's talking about intimate relationships and disagreements they have about that. And then in chapters eight through 10, he starts talking about food. And that's where we're going to go today. We're going to talk about divisions around food. So let me just read the story and then I'll walk through it uh, verse by verse. If you have a Bible, we're in 1 Corinthians 10. uh, We're going to start at verse 23. And Paul writes this. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? And then he ends this little section. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. There's a lot of confusing scripture in the Bible. This is up there for me. First of all, Paul writes with a weird cadence and he's sort of repetitive and he's like, it seems like he's trying hard to explain himself again and he often just confuses me more. And then on top of that, we're just like talking about meat and markets and I don't get it. So let me start at the beginning and try to explain a little bit for you. The first uh, section here, the first verse, 23. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial, right? And he repeats it. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Paul starts this section of the scripture with this phrase, I have the right to do anything. He's actually used it one other time earlier in the book, uh, and and now he uses it twice over here. Uh, He used it in chapter six uh, when they're talking about uh, people from their church visiting temple prostitutes, which was a a common thing uh, in their culture. But that phrase, I have the right to do anything, seems like a common turn of phrase in the culture. And Paul is uh, using it again for those who are using that phrase to justify how they are living. 
Essentially, what he's noting is that many of the people, the Christ followers in this community, have adopted what later commentators called triumphalist theology, okay? Which basically means this. Because I'm in Christ, sin can no longer do anything bad to me. That's essentially what they think. Because I am in Christ and I'm following Jesus, there is no consequences to me for anything bad. Everything is permissible and I can do whatever I want without repercussion. To which Paul says, kind of, but not really. Paul says, you have all kinds of freedom in Christ because he has lifted the burden of sin from you. But even if that's true, not everything is good for you. And especially everything you do is not good for others around you. And if we care deeply about our brothers and our sisters uh, and our community and the people around me, we actually have to think of their needs when we make decisions. So it's not true just to say, like, I can do whatever I want, right? I have freedom in Christ, so I have the right to do anything. Yeah, maybe, but that's not a good idea. Because if we care about the people around us, that should drive our decision-making. He actually says it again in verse 24. He says, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of the others, right? He, he reinforces that. That's how Paul starts. Now he starts talking about food, right? Now, the whole premise of food being a problem doesn't make sense to us. This is not an issue you deal with. On a, uh, let me just name that. This is an issue they deal with. The early church... Uh, dealt with this issue. And what Paul says, honestly, would be difficult to, to hear. Because the first Christians were all Jews, were all Jewish. They were Jewish people from Israel that followed Jesus and talked to each other about following Jesus, which means they had a ton of Jewish religious baggage and background. They had all these Jewish uh, religious laws like ritual washing and what food you could eat, depending on how it was prepared, what other food it touched, things like that. These were uh, ingrained in the Jewish community and their faith for literally generations. And now we have Paul, and he's in this non-Jewish city with Christians who are also not Jewish. Some of them are, some of them are not. And they are trying to figure out What does it mean for us to live uh, our faith here in this time, in this community, with our Jewish background and our heritage of faith and how we understand the world? So it gets complex. Now, again, for us, this isn't much of an issue. We don't think about what's Christian food and what's secular food. We don't tend to do that, do we? Uh, But I think we actually still really get it because we do it with plenty of other things. Because we have music and we have Christian music. Right? We have movies and we have Christian movies. We have education and we have Christian education. We do get this. We just don't apply it to food. And it's in to this sort of divided approach, Paul says this in verse 25 with food. He says, eat anything sold in the market without raising questions of conscience. Okay, so you could just eat anything. Why? And then he goes on and he says, he actually quotes Psalms here. He says, uh, uh, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Look, everything belongs to God. So what if it was sacrificed in a temple to a pagan God and then sold in the market? God is bigger than that. God is more powerful than that. 
So that's his starting point with how we should address food. Remember, God's bigger than your rules about food. And then he gives two examples. Two examples of how they can take that attitude and follow Jesus in a more unified approach, particularly when it comes to food. So the first example he gives, verse 27. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever they put in front of you. Don't ask questions. Doesn't matter where it came from. Paul's saying if someone invites you over for dinner and you don't know where this food came from, you don't know whether or not it was sacrificed to a pagan God and then sold in the market, Paul says, don't worry about it. God's bigger than all of that. Eat, be with that person. Stay in relationship with that person who invited you over. That is the most important thing for you to consider when you're kind of spinning your wheels going, what do I do here? I mean, think for a minute what would happen if all all the Christ followers in this metropolitan city of Corinth uh, that was heavily influenced by all these other pagan gods would say, "Uh, we can't eat with any of you anymore because of the way you prepare your food and because of when and where you buy it and how, how you cook it, right? But yet this person wants to invite you over for dinner and you're like, I'm sorry, I can't. That stands in between us. What an incredibly divisive way of living that would be. How many people in the community would have nothing to do with Christians and Christianity because of their self-isolation? Uh, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Eat with that person. Paul says, don't divide your life. Don't ostracize your friends, your family, or anybody else, turning them off to the gospel of Jesus based on this. So that's the first example he gives. Somebody invites you over, that's really important. You should go. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. At the same time, he gives another example. Paul says, uh, someone does raise an issue. Let's pay attention to that. Uh, If that person's a fellow believer, he says, but if someone says to you, this food has been offered in a sacrifice to idols, then don't eat it for the sake of you and for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. Now, remember, many of these followers are are, are in this town going, how do I reckon my uh, faith heritage with my current reality? So there are plenty of Jewish Christians still trying to figure out how to do this. And for some of these Jewish followers of Jesus, food's still a big deal to them. Where it came from, where it had been sacrificed, all, it could have come from anywhere. So Paul's basically saying, look, if you're having dinner with someone like that, and this is going to be a stumbling block for them, then you should just say, no, let's not eat it then. We don't know where it came from. I'm with you. And it may sound like Paul's telling you to do two different things. It may sound like the world we live in where we're different people depending on where we go. It may sound, he's saying, like, divide it up, cut it up based on who you're with. But he's not. I believe Paul's actually raising a unifying thread here. Paul's instructing his followers that an important through line of your life when it comes to this divisive topic is to meet other people where they are. If where they are is no concept of meat sacrificed to idols, then you don't need to worry about it right now either. If where they are is they're really anxious about it, then you don't need to make it a problem for them. Meet other people where they are at. Because I believe Paul's ultimate goal for his followers is not to live a divided life. And one of his through lines is to say, 
uh, if there's a rule of life that you have, part of that should be meeting people in your community where they are at. And if you follow this rule of life, then you can be the same person no matter what the food is on your table. Does that make sense? It's, it's why he ends the whole thing by saying, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Paul wants his people thinking deeply and passionately about the life of Christ and how does my life look like Christ's? How does my eating and drinking flow out of my desire to be like Christ? It sounds a little silly, but this is how it makes sense. Well, Jesus met people where they were at. What if you started there? Which means if eating and drinking, according to Paul, are spiritual activities, then everything we do is spiritual. And he brings this up in a letter to Colossians uh, as well, where he says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks of the, uh, to the God the Father through him. And later on, he says, uh, here there's no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, but Christ is all and in all. You see, Christ is the through line. Christ is this rule of life for every aspect of who we are. And to Paul, when you put that in the center point, then it doesn't matter what's on your table. We tend to use Christian as an adjective. This is something that is Christian or isn't. Movies, music, art, education, whatever it is. But in Jesus's language, in Paul's language of Hebrew, they have no word for spiritual. They cannot label something as spiritual and something that isn't. Because every aspect of our life flows through the same spiritual reality. So how do you live when you're with someone you met at church? How do you live your life when you're with your friends on the weekend? How do you live your life at the New Year's Eve party, when you're with your spouse, when you're with your boss? I think the first question we ask is, am I the same person in every one of those places? Am I living out of the same values in every one of those places? And the second question I ask is, is that person defined by Christ everywhere I go? One way that I want to give you some practical way to kind of live into that a little bit. Because you might be nodding your head and going, yeah, I get that. I just don't know how to do that, right? Um, One way I try to do this and try to answer that question, am I the same person everywhere I go? Is is that person defined by Christ wherever I go? Uh, I I add a little bit to the WWJD bracelet. Like, what would Jesus do, right? I finish that sentence with, what would Jesus do if he were me? It's a different way for my brain to think about it. What would Jesus do if he were me? Meaning, if Jesus were in my shoes, if Jesus had my boss, Right? If Jesus had my ex, if Jesus were parenting my kids, my actual kids, if Jesus were feeling what I'm feeling right now, if Jesus were me in this situation, what would he do? And that's kind of where we're going through the rest of this whole series. Today is the first one of this series. We're going to look at these different hats we wear, these different circumstances and relationships we find ourselves in, and really to say, like, how do we answer that question, what would Jesus do if he were me in that regard? But today, that's the one question I just want you to ask. What would Jesus do if he were me? And believe it or not, it's actually something you don't have to wait for the situation to show up and then ask the question, which is what we often do. It's something you can and probably should 
decide ahead of time. That's basically what Paul is saying. If Jesus were me, he would be focused on meeting others where they are at, no matter what kind of food issue they were having. So I'm going to apply that to my dinner plans tonight, right? If Jesus were me, he'd want to meet people where you're at. So when I have dinner plans, that's how I'm going to approach it. It's what we call a rule of life, a rule of life. And I believe in, in 2024, it's one of the best things you can do to drive yourself towards a more unified and undivided life, a life that's more defined by who Christ is rather than just trying to follow every rule in every circumstance. Because we all have well-established patterns of living. We all have rules of life. Whether it's intentional or not, that's the difference. Some of us have like uh, an intentional set of commitments or an unstated set of values or priorities and those drive our actions. Maybe you have practices that do that, like coming to church every seven days or every 30, depending on who we are, right? But most of us are not deliberate with the patterns of our lives. And because we're not deliberate, our lives feel scattered. Our schedule is full, but it doesn't reflect anything that we prioritize or value. Or maybe we feel hurried, right? We're busier than we want to be, but we don't know what it is that we should do to change it. Or life feels reactive. We're always, uh, we're never in charge. We're always responding to somebody else's demands. Or many of us just feel exhausted. At the end of the day, we're weary, we're discouraged. We are unsure if we spent that day well. That's what happens when we don't intentionally decide what our rules of life are going to be. A rule of life is simply a commitment to live your life a particular way. What, were G- what would Jesus do if he were me is a rule of life. It is a commitment to live your life a certain way. I think the key is to define that ahead of time. That once you define it or write it down, it becomes this tool that helps you make decisions, helps you practice things in your life, uh, how to best order your day. The most well-known rule of life is from St. Benedict, and he was, had this monastery with these monks in the Middle Ages uh, 1,500 years ago, and he had a rule of life that was this. Prayer, work, study, hospitality, and renewal. Prayer, work, study, hospitality, and renewal. Those five things. If I organize my life, if we organize our day, if we organize our community as a monastery around those five things, prayer, work, study, hospitality, and renewal, we will be following Christ well. A rule of life is different than goals. A rule of life is different than intentions or resolutions that we tend to set for ourselves. A rule of life is comprised of uh, of simple statements that guide your posture to life and how you live your days. It's not lived perfectly. It usually can't be, right? Uh, It can be lived faithfully, which is our goal. And what it does is it integrates your life into this idea of faith. It says, this is what drives me. I do take Paul's words about food really seriously. I try to meet people where they are at. That's part of my rule of life too. I try to start with where they're starting rather than with where I want them to be. Paul's got good advice for rule of life. Uh, over the years, I've been, I've been developing rules of life in my own life too. I've, I've talked about these before, but here are three things that are currently part of my rules of life. The first one is patience. 
And as I think about patience as a rule of life, I try to take as long as I can when I make decisions, knowing I'm prone to moving fast. That's me. That might not be you, but for me, it's true. Because I'm prone to moving fast, I think I miss some things about who Jesus is and what he wants. So I try to take a long time as much as I can to make a decision. I'm not perfect at it, but I'm faithful at it. And the second one is wisdom. Uh, I try, I'm prone to thinking that I know best. I'm prone to thinking that my ideas are really, really good. So I, I have this rule of life of going, ask questions that are from your perspective. How do you see things? Try to get in the head of other people and see if there's wisdom there for me to be had. So I ask questions. How do you see this instead of believing my own, my own press, right? And then the third one is authenticity. You ever have that? You meet somebody in the grocery store or wherever at church on Sunday morning. Hey, how's it going? How's your holiday break? Oh, great. Yeah, just fine. That's not always true, is it? So for me, authenticity is when I'm asked, I want to answer honestly. When I'm asked, how's it going or what's new in your life? I want to answer honestly for me with safe people. You don't, not everybody in our lives are safe enough to have that kind of authenticity. So I want to practice it with safe people. I try to meet people where they're at, like Paul is encouraging us to. I also practice patience, wisdom, and authenticity. If I ask, what what would Jesus do if he were me? I think he would be patient if he were me. I think he would be wise if he were me. I think he would be authentic if he were me. So those are the things I want to try to live into. Everybody is different. These hit me in a particular way because of who I am and who God's made me in my own story. They hit you in a different way because of who you are. But I think the key is to develop an intentional rule of life so that I show up the same person everywhere I go, no matter who I'm with. What might happen? if we made choices in our life to reject a fragmented approach and started to live a more integrated life? What would happen if we chose to bring our whole self with us wherever we go, with our children, with our spouse, with our coworkers, with our friends? What could happen if we lived an undivided life everywhere we went? Without a rule of life that comes from Christ, without a through line that guides our choices and our actions, we just end up reacting. We just end up scattered. We just end up a different person in every circumstance. And I think God wants more from us and for us than that way of living. So let's pray together. Lord God, uh, we recognize that we react that we uh, don't live by an intentional rule of life that drives us to look like you or follow you. Um, God, we recognize that we're often just out here living on our own terms. So God, forgive us of that. Forgive us for the times where we uh, believe that we know best. And instead, God, impress upon us the desire to look more like you. Give us opportunity to recognize uh, what our life might look like if you were us. Give us people in our life, God, to challenge us to a rule of life that drives us closer to you. God, I pray for our scattered lives that they would become whole. I pray for our disconnected lives that they would become connected. I pray for our broken lives that they would be healed. And God, more than anything, we are grateful today that every single part of our life does belong to you. May we be people who offer us 
uh, offer you all of who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.